0: Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Uh, coming up on the show, Larry Diamond, Senior Fellow at Stanford's Freeman Spogli Institute and author of the book Ill Wins, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition and American Complacency, out now in paperback. Uh, Larry, welcome to Bookstack.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, Great to be with you, Richard.
0: Uh, So when you originally published this book, it was ill winds threatening to uh, democracy. I wonder if more recently it sometimes felt uh, like a tempest.
1: Well, uh, I'd say on January 6th, it became a hurricane and it almost blew the house down.
0: I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it, that at the beginning of the book, you say that in 2016, you thought the institutions too strong, the democratic norms too established to elect Trump. But in 2020, they have done what some thought they would not, prove strong enough to complete the transition to a new president. So in many ways, can we be optimistic about uh, the way in which democracy and its institutions have worked?
1: I think... Uh we should be humble, shaken, uh, sobered, but yes, hopeful, I'd say more than optimistic. We have seen unleashed a firestorm of racial hatred and animus, uh, these pro-Trump protests, these election protests have been infused with white supremacist uh, and I'd say quasi-fascist sentiment by heavily armed people who aren't going away, the same people who uh, generically or metaphorically, the same people who plotted to kidnap, try and execute the governor of Michigan. Uh, and who seemed, some of them, the most extreme of them, intent on uh, capturing and uh, literally uh, hanging uh, the Vice President of the United States, uh, along with the Speaker of the House and probably whoever else they could get their hands on. So we face... A very serious challenge of right-wing, ex- violent right-wing extremism in the United States, an outer circle around that of not necessarily violently intended, but it is certainly anti-institutionalist and anti-truth right-wing extremism, fed by grotesque conspiracy theories and this dangerous philosophy uh, of QAnon, where people actually think that there are, uh, that there is a cabal of uh, uh, politicians, business people, uh, a conspiracy of child exploiting uh, powerful people who want to control the world. Uh, and who Donald Trump was battling in the way that, um, you know, a heroic figure would battle Satan. I mean, this is as twisted and demented as it gets, but a shocking number of people believe this. So the challenge before us is extremely grave, Richard, and uh, the fact that 147 members, Republican members of Congress, 139 on the House side, eight on the Senate side, would have voted to challenge the results of the 2020 election after they had been so thoroughly vetted in the courts. And even after this nearly catastrophic assault on the Capitol on January 6th, I think all of this is immensely sobering and we aren't even close to restoring The health and order of our democracy.
0: I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, Larry, because there does definitely seem to be a volume of opinion which is growing that, you know, actually this stress test for democracy does show that the system works. All of those things that you've said are true. And yet, nevertheless, the election itself, the actions of the courts, including the Supreme Court, the Electoral College, that astonishing congressional vote, uh, even the uh, former vice president, Mike Pence, they they all did their job on the day. And that a system that was built in the 18th century did actually show itself to be incredibly resilient for the 21st century world.
1: I think there is substantial truth and validity to what you've said, Richard. But I think it is only a partial view of how well we've held up uh, in the face of the most serious assault on our democratic norms and institutions by any president in American history, I do want to add that there were points of vulnerability in the system revealed by the stress test in the same way that we found points of uh, vulnerability in our financial system after the 2008 financial crisis that we'd better learn from and fix before we face the possibility that this could happen again. And one point of vulnerability uh, is the secretaries of state who are the chief electoral officers in many of these states. Let me pick Brad Raffensberger, the Republican Secretary of State of Georgia, as uh, one example, uh, and I think a kind of symbol of the problem. This man, I think, deserves the enduring historical gratitude of the American public, of future generations, uh, spiritually of the founding fathers. He's a Republican. He, he admits that he voted for Trump. He probably has aspirations uh, for higher office. The current Republican governor of Georgia had been Secretary of State. And he faced withering pressure from Republicans uh, who are fanatical followers of Trump and then we know from Trump himself who made repeated efforts to reach the man and finally had this famous phone call with him Raffensperger faced withering pressure to in Trump's words find 11,780 more votes for Trump so he could win the Georgia election and you know in an election in an estate like Georgia with several million votes, uh, that's not a lot of votes. And Raffensperger proved to be a man more committed to the rule of law, more committed to democracy, more committed to the honest and faithful execution of the duties of office, uh, than to a political cause uh, and a partisan purpose and loyalty to uh, a, a candidate and a political movement. Well, you know, how many people give a lot of thought to voting for Secretary of State? How many people know when they vote for the Secretary of State of their state, that in the majority of states in the United States, that is the most the, the peak electoral officer of the state. What if the Trump wing of the Republican Party, the QAnon wing of the Republican Party, the wing of the Republican Party that is starting to send to Congress literally crazy people uh, who believe in QAnon, And think the answer to our problems is, is literally to carry guns onto the floor of the House of Representatives. What if these same people decide to target the office of Secretary of State and throw all their organizing efforts into electing one of their own? Next time, we may not get a chief electoral officer of the state who puts the fulfillment of their duties over their partisan interests. So this is just one example of the challenge ahead, Richard. We need in the next two years to have a very clear-eyed analysis of where the points of vulnerability are and to make reforms before we face the stress test again. And I think one of the reforms is that we shouldn't have partisan elected officials who will come out in interviews after the election and reveal who they voted for uh, making these decisions. We were lucky this time. We may not be so lucky in a future time.
0: I mean, it's interesting. I can I can see how that that threat going forward, and now the the way in which it's revealed itself during this election, uh, could be taken advantage of. Uh, the other way of looking at it is that very Tocquevillian way of thinking about American democracy. That you know, this election showed just how deep the roots of of democratic practice are in uh, the United States. That uh, Lockeville himself points out that you know you every local community has these elections, these elected officials. Uh, I see it where I live in elections for the school board and every local official. That you know maybe that is one of the things that that actually saved American democracy during this process. That right down to that very local level, people understand how democracy works and actually mo- the majority of people have a fundamental respect for that system.
1: Yes, I think that's true. And I think there is wisdom in the argument being made that there was value in not having a central single electoral commission, that Trump might have somehow stacked and corrupted the the distribution of electoral authority across counties and states across the United States. Uh, probably gave us a layer of immunity. I am only saying now that I think that should be reformed, insulated, and professionalized, and given further immunity against future partisan political interference or conquest.
0: There's another aspect actually in the book that speaks to something similar. I mean, one of the most chilling things to when I went back to reread this book in uh, the paperback edition um you know that it is pretty clear that this election has been a, a wake up call in a technical in the technical way you're talking about for the election um as i say you give the example of this book written before the election that uh, the electronic voting system in many states is is not backed up with a, pa- a paper record and so is completely open uh, to some kind of hack um I mean, that is a perfect example of us being lucky to get away with things this time round, having right. a, an essentially analog system for a, a digital age.
1: Now, l- let me make a couple points about that, if I may, uh, Richard. I'm so glad you've raised that. We actually made, in this last electoral cycle, significant progress in reforming our systems of voting in many of the states, the complaints that have been raised about a particular company, for example, that was supplying uh, counting machines uh, for the votes, all of these uh, newer counting machines were actually producing a paper trail of the electronic count. So we made progress in this regard but we have uh, still some elements of vulnerability. One of them results from the fact that because the equipment in many cases is still uh, not of the most modern quality, and because uh, many states lack the equipment and the number of staff necessary to count mail-in ballots. The amount of time it took to count mail-in ballots required uh, many, many hours, and even in some cases a day or two, after the night of the election itself. And this is what led to Trump being able, as we had warned, uh, we knew this was going to happen, Uh, Being able to claim that there was fraud because in some states he was leading on election night because he won a majority of the votes of people who voted in the voting booth on election day, but lost thereafter because the majority of people who cast mail-in ballots, uh, the vast majority in some states, uh, were Democrats who voted against Trump and so we need better technology to count the votes quickly to increase confidence in the process and we more we need more staff to do this and this is going to require more funding i want to stress because election experts have stressed that a major reason why the election went so well even though we had many more people voting than ever ever before in american history we had nearly 160 million americans uh, voting and that was the highest turnout of the voting eligible american public in something like a century the reason why it went so well is because private philanthropies poured into state and local electoral administration literally made philanthropic grants to public agencies something over half a billion dollars in funding. And the reason why they had to do that is that the Republicans in the Senate blocked uh, Democratic efforts to fund assistance to state and local electoral administration at the level that the professionals said was needed. So ultimately, Mitch McConnell agreed to include in one bill $400 million in assistance to state and local electoral administration. But the real need was estimated at $1 to $2 billion. And private philanthropies stepped in to substantially make up the difference. Without that, and the efforts of organizations like the uh, Healthy Elections Project, based partly here at Stanford, and Power the Polls, which recruited poll workers for election day when the traditional uh, elderly poll workers, in many cases, had to step back because of the virus. We could have had a breakdown in the system. This shouldn't have to happen in the future. And so I hope Congress will step up and provide well in advance of 2022, the more systemic and official funding assistance that's needed to the states and localities.
0: Yeah, it's one of the really interesting elements of the book actually that a lot of it is dealing with these kind of procedural fixes, the the kind of technical details that uh, will make democracy function better and the electoral system uh, function better. But you also talk about uh, what we might describe as the crisis of democratic legitimacy uh, about the whole idea of democracy. And as as you point out in the book sustaining democracy begins and ends with culture. In other words, that people have to believe in democracy, they have to be willing to defend it as a way of life. Um, where, Where do you think that we stand by that measure today?
1: I think there has been some erosion in American public support for democracy. Many Americans still say, the the vast majority of Americans in all our public opinion polling, which I've been somewhat involved with, say that they st- still think over or around 80% that the democracy is the best form of government. They still say it's important to live in an, in a democracy. But we saw between 2017, say, and 2019, which captures the first two two and a half years of the trump presidency a quite significant rise in the percentage of the american uh public who say that violence would be at least somewhat justified if their party lost the 2020 election and of course this was a very big warning sign that uh manifested itself in in what we saw on January 6th. Now, uh, we also see rising signs of uh, intolerance of opposition, of denial of truth, uh, of support for crazy conspiracy theories. I actually think we have a lot of work to do, uh, Richard, in several senses on the normative front. Number one, I think we need to revive in general across the United States and targeted especially toward young people in the schools, civic education to teach the traditions, history, values underlying our constitutional system. Number two, I think we have a lot more work to do to delegitimate violence and to teach. Uh, people and spread messages from our political leaders and from our civic leaders and from our religious leaders that violence, whether of the left that we saw in some of the extreme uh, protesters surrounding the Black Lives Matter protests uh, earlier in 2020, or from the right that we particularly saw explode on January 6th, Violence is never justified in a democracy. And the third thing I would say is that at a mass level, we have to start working to reduce the toxic levels of animus, uh, distrust, and even hatred uh, that partisans of the two parties Uh, at the outer extremes feel toward one another, and that large portions of Democrats and Republicans feel at least to some degree toward the other party. And I think that there are techniques we can use, including Democratic deliberation and deliberative polling, which we uh, have begun to do uh, with a project uh, called America in One Room that I've been involved in. Uh, that show some promise of bridging the gap and generating greater empathy and understanding between ordinary Americans. But our politicians have got to set an example in this regard.
0: I mean, you, you talked about empathy there. You also talked about young people. Uh, I mean, in some ways, it's about the poetry of the idea of democracy, as we saw in the inauguration uh, ceremonies with uh, the young poet Amanda Gorman. Uh, somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished, she said. I mean, it, in many ways, that kind of those words, those sentiments should give us confidence in the rising generation.
1: Yes, I have, I, I teach the rising generation <laughs> Me too, at Stanford University. So uh, we both are interacting with these extraordinarily optimistic, creative, uh, aesthetic, technologically adroit, imaginative, and passionately committed young people. We know the hope that they express and carry for the future of our democracy. And we know, as we saw through the remarkable, I would say, unforgettable, uh, inspiring remarks of the national youth poet, this extraordinary 22-year-old African-American woman who spoke at the inauguration on Wednesday, we know the promise that they carry, but we also know from public opinion survey data that the generation does include uh, many people who feel alienated from democracy and are inclined at various points on the political spectrum toward conspiracy theories and accepting at face value what they see on social media. So Richard, I don't want to close our chat here without stressing how high a priority we must place now on trying to detoxify social media and trying to find ways to vet it, to get the social media companies to place values of truth responsibility and civility at a higher level than the personal profit that they derive by allowing extremism, outrage, and conspiracy theories to proliferate without adequate regulation uh, on their social media platforms.
0: Yeah, and I guess, I mean, it's social media, but it's, it's also the television media as well, isn't it? That, I mean, since that fairness doctrine was revoked in the, the 1980s, it's become impossible to create any kind of consensus now in the television news around truth about what facts are. And that has, has implications that we're seeing today.
1: Yes, of course, that's true, and one gets the feeling by watching some cable television networks that not only Fox News uh, that you know you are watching a rather partisan uh, political broadcast. Uh, you know, as someone uh, who watches a lot of MSNBC, I can say I think they have tremendous investigative reporting and strong commitment to democratic principles, but uh, it's not exactly balanced in its coverage of political life in the United States. I do think that Fox News has been in a category by itself, and political science efforts to measure uh, bias uh, have found that to be the case. Uh, And I hope that Fox News uh, will move in a direction at least toward upholding truth over conspiracy theories as a uh, foundational principle of their operations. But now that they're being challenged on the more extreme and conspiracy-minded theory right, their commercial incentive. Uh, is to become even worse than they have been of late. And that is a great danger to our democracy as well.
0: And presumably, I mean, it's the kind of thing that none of the news channels particularly try to reach out to a a different demographic. I mean, the the famous example over the last couple of weeks was uh, Anderson Cooper on CNN, a Vanderbilt heir who mocked Trump supporters for eating at Olive Garden. I mean, that's the kind of, Let them eat cake stuff that actually does undermine the the very fabric of democratic debate, doesn't it?
1: I didn't know about that, but that is, um, yeah, it's an example of exactly what we don't need. Any impulse uh, that commentators, intellectuals, elites, politicians, left of center, uh, or non Trump, political and civic leaders might have to dismiss Trump supporters or protesters of the 2020 election as a basket of deplorables, to quote uh, Hillary Clinton's famous words. They really need to be checked at the door now of our civic dialogue. And we desperately need to do what, this is one of the things that fills me with hope, what I think Joe Biden's instincts are to do to treat everybody with respect, to treat everybody with empathy, to try to get inside their mind and their eyes and understand what motivates them, to hold people responsible for illegal and undemocratic contact, uh, 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 illegal and undemocratic conduct, or for rhetoric that's beyond the pale, of civil dialogue, but otherwise, to treat them with respect, uh, and to try and engage them in a dialogue that moves beyond this current level of polarization.
0: You're literally bringing birdsong into our lives there, Larry. (laughs) Um, I mean, President Biden, uh, as you say, said that he wants to start afresh, that politics doesn't have to be a raging fire, disagreement should not lead to disunion, I mean, how, how much chance do you think there is that we can actually turn the page in the, in the way that he's, he's suggesting?
1: I think there is a good chance because I think he's really, really serious about it. But it's going to take a long time. Progress is going to be incremental. Uh, his cabinet and his staff have to really internalize the message of reconciliation and depolarization that he is trying to convey, beginning with, uh, well, his campaign and certainly his memorable inaugural address. But beyond that, we need a broader strategy of depolarization, of compromise, of techniques to engage people across political uh, divides, uh, of trying to combat conspiracy theories uh, with truth and evidence, and uh, I'd say fairly comprehensive strategy of de-radicalization of some of these extreme elements of our society. This has to be combined with a a law enforcement effort that makes clear that people who cross the line to violence or, or violation of the law are going to be prosecuted. And the result is, for those who are convicted, is going to be very serious and lengthy punishment.
0: I mean, you end uh, the book, uh, or towards the end of the book, uh, you quote George Kennan in the famous Long Telegram of 1946, uh, where he says that every courageous measure to improve self-confidence, discipline, morale, and community is a victory. Now, in his case, He's talking about a victory over the Soviet Union. But uh, those words apply to democracy itself, don't they? And protecting and supporting and enriching uh, the democratic ideal.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for quoting one of my favorite quotations in the book. Uh, And thank you for understanding uh, how vividly it applies to our current moment. And I think Kennan not only uh, calls us to a higher standard and a renewed sense of urgency about addressing our democratic deficiencies and repairing them, but also he reminds us about the fundamental unity between the domestic challenge and the international challenge, which, which we won't have the time to talk about in this conversation, but you know, I, I want to at least conclude on, uh, and that is that we cannot regain our international credibility in promoting and defending democracy internationally. And we cannot restore at least some degree of our global leadership Uh, in this cause, as I think we must do, and I think President Biden intends for us to do, unless we make progress in healing our country domestically, reducing our polarization, and reforming and reviving our democratic institutions. So I think this has to be one of the urgent tasks of our political life ahead.
0: So the book is Ill Winds: Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition and American Complacency. It's written by my guest Larry Diamond and published in paperback by Penguin. Uh, But for now, Larry, great to talk to you as always. And thanks for joining us on Bookstack.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Richard.
0: So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damien Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening.